Welcome to Black Boys and Men, Changing the Narrative, a podcast series sponsored by the McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research at the NYU Silver School of Social Work and the Community Technical Assistance Center of New York. I'm your host, Jason Jones. This series brings together thought leaders, community members, and individuals with lived experience to discuss and dispel the myths and stereotypes surrounding black boys and men, while providing facts and best practices for those working with these often marginalized populations. Black fathers often contend with the stereotypes of being lazy, disinterested in the lives of their children and families, and absent from their communities. Those stereotypes are just that, stereotypes. However, black fathers also contend with policies that adversely affect them and their ability to provide for their families. We are joined by Dr. David Pate, a leading expert on low-income African-American men in fatherhood and associate professor at the Helen Bader School of Social Welfare at the University of Wisconsin, Milwaukee. Dr. Pate, thanks for joining us. Let's start by hearing a little bit more about you and your work. Thank you for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be part of the series. The work that I've been doing for the last 20 years has been focused on black males, specifically black males who are fathers of children who are very poor and are trying to make ends meet. And I focus on the issues of child support policy, specifically as to how that policy interacts with TANF or Temporary Assistance to Needy Families, which is generally or commonly known as welfare or cash assistance throughout the country. And I've wanted to know whether or not those men are able to, you know, take care of their basic needs, whether they're able to be involved with their children, what's life like for them and the mother of their child, is there any issues of domestic violence, and also just what is their own life course that has possibly gotten them to the place where they're at now. So I've had the great opportunity to work with several colleagues over the last couple of years on a few projects. One of them is a project where myself and a law school professor at UW-Madison Tanya Brito is working on a NSF grant that allows us to sit in courtrooms and to observe the interaction between the judges and the men who are coming to court for not paying the child support and to see whether or not access to justice issues are being upheld. We have had the opportunity to interview judges, lawyers, public defenders, the men themselves, the mothers of some of their children, as well as other interested parties such as those who do job hiring and temp agencies to see how this all interacts with them. So that's been one project I've been doing for the last four years, and we've had a few publications and hope to have some future work that comes out of that as well as a book. The other work that I've been doing that I've really been very excited about is looking at the issues of adverse childhood experiences on the life course of men, and I'm doing that with a colleague, Dr. James Dimitri Tepetsis, who specializes in child welfare work. And I wanted to understand, really, what is the role of trauma in men's lives, particularly black men's lives, as they try to navigate the systems of employment and child support and parole and probation, as well as just the everyday, day-to-day experiences of living in a neighborhood that may be plagued by some issues that we find to be very problematic for their day-to-day experience. So we've, we've done that work and looking at a federally funded work program, and we are very excited about that. And we now have an extension of that program working with a new group of community advocates in Milwaukee where we're going to look at the issues of trauma-informed care for men who are receiving not just a job or a transitional job, but also access to mental health as well as health services. And I'm going to specifically be following 10 to 15 of those men over a four-year period with my colleagues to see whether or not 
we can document just what are some of the challenges to maintaining or being able to have employment in a way as well as other services that hopefully will get to a place of self-sufficiency. And my final project that I just started, which I'm very excited about, is looking at the issue of violence prevention in the city of Milwaukee with our Office of Violence Prevention to look at young people, particularly those who are 18 to 24, young adults, to see what are some of the issues of violence they are contending with on a daily basis. They're going to be very intimately involved in helping me to inform the data and, and to collect the data on what is going on in certain specific zip codes within the Milwaukee area. And I'm doing that with a colleague of Paul Florsheim, who's very well known for his work on men as well as mental health work, particularly in the area of fatherhood. So I'm fairly busy, but also doing some work that really relates in ways that are helping me to be better informed about how to talk about the issues of men, particularly black men in this country. Great. And how did you actually get into this work? I initially got into this work when I was a graduate student getting my master's in social work. I was very interested in trying to figure out a way to find a niche of a population that I wanted to work with. And so I had an internship working with middle school boys who were experiencing some issues in school. And so we had a therapy group that met on Saturdays where we did a variety of fun things with them to get them to talk about issues they were confronting on a daily basis. And from that group, I learned that that was a group that I decided I wanted to work with for the rest of my life was working with on behalf of or working with black males, particularly in the point of giving them voice, but also recognizing not the stereotypical portrayal we see in the media, but having people recognize their resiliency and their contributions to the world. So I did that and then moved from that work to looking at work in a teen pregnancy clinic and doing work in a perinatal center, doing work in a domestic violence center, but always focusing on how do you engage young men or men, period, in a discussion or in an issue that will hopefully help not make them better, but help them to be in a better space. I was part of a grant-giving space as well as doing policy work, and it was doing my policy work around the issue of child support in black men that I really decided that that was going to be my academic trajectory as well. And that's when I started really documenting and trying to understand the legal social welfare connection and what that meant for young men who were trying to raise their children but did not have the most adequate resources. That sounds great. And I, I appreciate the aspect of giving these young men a voice and actually having them talk about their struggles, because I think that that's something that's often missing from the work. Mm-hmm. I totally agree. I often think that we don't give this population recognition. And I, I really have to even confront often my social work students to think about the men in the family because we often don't think of family as including men. We tend to define family as women and children. And your research often involves the understanding of non-custodial fathers of children on welfare. And I'm wondering, how do current child support enforcement practices influence the relationships low-income non-custodial fathers have with their children? Child support enforcement, which is connected to TAM, is the topic that I talk to, is important for everyone to understand that when you hear child support is not about that middle-class mother and father getting divorced, but we're talking about non-married parents who are generally poor who are involved in the child support enforcement system. And the child support enforcement system is a relatively new phenomenon. It started in 1975. It requires that women who receive any kind of benefits that are cash benefits prior to 1996, it was AFDC or Aid to Families of Dependent Children. 
After 1996, it was temporary assistance for needy families. And every state has a different way of calling their TANF program, but it's a cash assistance program. So when women or mothers or parents sign up for a cash assistance program in their state, they're required to sign up also for child support. They assign their rights to child support, and they must cooperate with the Child Support Enforcement Agency. However, the Child Support Enforcement Agency is there for the purpose of being reimbursed for the funds that the mother or father who is the primary parent has received from the state. So child support primarily is seen by many people as a financial arm. They don't provide many services. Some places do try to do that with special waivers and special relationships they have with fatherhood programs. But the problem with the Child Support Enforcement Program is that it is primarily there for the purpose of reimbursement currently in about 28 states in our country. That's their primary purpose, is to go after those fathers whom they think are not involved with their children to get a financial reimbursement to the state. One of the things I've said for the last 10 years is that generally people will meet with someone who is just as poor as them. So if you're mating with someone who is just as poor as you are, and now that person who is making maybe minimum wage or a little better than minimum wage has a debt that is owed to the state. And so when they pay their child support or when their check is garnished, the money is going to the state and not to their child. And if the person who has this particular child support order was not at the hearing for whatever reason, they were not served the papers at the correct address, or they didn't understand that once they're unemployed or they're incarcerated, they think that naturally they're not working so there won't be any child support debt. Therefore, they shouldn't have accumulated debt Many people don't understand how the system works, so they accumulate debt, and therefore this debt cannot be removed in, in bankruptcy. This debt accumulates interest because it's, it's, it's interest is compounded. So for many poor men, and the majority of people who owe child support are making less than $10,000 a year, therefore they have this debt that, goes, that stays with them until they die, for many of them, because they never make enough money to pay it all back or pay back what they owe to the state and or to the mother. Many men and women whose children go into child welfare are accumulating debt that they just never can pay. And the, the law says that if you don't have the money, you should have a zero order. However, many people don't follow that law, and that law is something that's important for families like this because it, 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 it makes it much harder for them to be able to live a debt-free life. So I'm wondering in terms of the stress endured by low-income non-custodial fathers trying to pay child support, in terms of their life course events and the challenges that they face stemming from systemic racism as well as systemic oppression, what are some of the specific challenges that they need to contend with in order to find gainful employment and sustain a good quality of life? So the one thing that I've noticed is that people are living under a significant amount of stress in various poor communities who are black and brown that other people don't have to live under. At the same time, in those neighborhoods where people are living under that are generally poor, and because we live in a very patriarchal society where we think that men should be able to get a job and take care of their family, some people don't have the same access to those, those opportunities to be able to take care of their family, have a child, get married if they desire to do that, and do all the things that would make them what we would call an ideal citizen because there's different types of points where you see that people begin with a knapsack full of lots of wonderful things that will allow them to keep it moving, 
and others have a knapsack that is totally empty, and there's nothing in there but what their job is because their parents don't have a house. Their parents don't have a uh, 401K. Their parents don't have any stocks and bonds. Their parents may not even have a high school degree, and we know those make a big difference as to whether or not you're going to have different outcomes that are going to enable you to be self-sufficient and take care of yourself in the future. And you mentioned the criminal justice system and mass incarceration. I'm wondering, how does the utilization of the criminal justice system for child support enforcement specifically target people of color and negatively impact black and brown families? I don't know if I would say it specifically targets black and brown people, but by, by default, you'll see more black and brown people who may be affected by the child support enforcement system. An example is for people who don't pay their child support, one of the options that a child support agency can use is to have someone placed in jail for civil contempt, which means they're not following the rules they're supposed to do, and therefore they must come to court, and if they don't pay what's owed, they will be put in jail for a certain amount of time. Now, not many states do this. Well, I don't know if I should say not many. More than one does it, that's for sure. And the prime example was Walter Scott when it was brought to national attention when Walter Scott was running away because he was fearful of going to jail for non-payment of child support. And Walter Scott lived in a state where if you're five days late with your payment of child support, a warrant goes out for your arrest because you haven't paid, which could lead to jail time. Now, the one thing I've been studying is the whole idea of this as a civil issue, which happens more often, because if you, if you pay your debt or you pay your order, then you won't go to jail or you can get out of jail if you have been incarcerated. Recently, in 2011, there was a case called Turner v. Rogers, which examined this whole issue of incarceration for civil contempt, which went to the U.S. Supreme Court. And at the U.S. Supreme Court level, they said you really have to look at people's ability to pay. If they don't have a true ability to pay, this particular threat of civil contempt or incarceration should not be used to get someone to pay. Child support should not be seen as a punishment. It's seen as a right for a child, but the parent also has to have the money to pay it. If the parent doesn't have the money, the law is in their favor for you not to charge them for this particular, for this particular order. So by default, because so many black people are much poorer or they have less assets and wealth, you're going to see more black and brown people affected. But all poor people are affected, but by default, you see more black and brown. And unfortunately, we don't have the numbers because the federal government doesn't keep numbers of how many people were incarcerated for this particular type of incarceration. It's a very unfortunate, frustrating phenomenon to observe on a daily basis that people just basically want to take care of their kids, and once the government gets involved, sometimes it can make it harder for them based on something like child support. And I know that there are a number of organizations that are working to combat some of these systemic inequalities. You co-founded the Center for Family Policy and Practice. Can you describe the focus of the organization as well as the work? Yeah, the Center for Family Policy and Practice was started in 1995, currently headed by Jacqueline Boges, um, who serves as executive director. And the main, uh, uh, the main reason for the center when it was founded was that the Ford Foundation was very interested in giving men voice. They really wanted to have someone really dissect and observe and, and document how does this child support system work for very poor men, particularly when the mother's receiving a cash benefit from the state. And that's what I did for the center is now in its 22nd year. And, and the purpose of the center was to initially look at the whole interaction 
between TANF recipients and child support and whether or not people understood the child support system, how it benefited them, what were some of the challenges to it, what about the issue of due process, were people getting due process when they were explained how the child support would affect them, the child support enforcement system would affect them. And we found a lot of different things with the center in terms of it became a place where people really came to because there was nowhere in the country where someone was really focusing on men of color, particularly black men, and this interaction with the child support system. From that, we also were able to look at the domestic violence issues and how that worked out in domestic violence advocates and how they could partner with us around fatherhood work because they're both two, they're usually two people who are both very poor and having some significant challenges and unfortunately in very poor communities. Generally, the one place you can find any kind of services is through a fatherhood program or through a DV program. And so Jacqueline took on the challenge of really trying to figure out a way to become a voice for black women who had been survivors of violence, but also for black men who wanted to be involved with their children and see how they could coexist or work together in a way that was through a racialized lens that really took an intersectionality approach to looking at this issue of gender, class, and race that hadn't been done before and has been very successful in bringing those two together and really trying to understand how do you help poor families who have limited resources but are, but are economically insecure, but also their safety can be compromised, but they both want the best for their child. And how do you do that for both of them? So that's been the work of the center for the last 22 years. It's focusing more now on economic security. How do various social welfare policies affect their ability to take care of their children? We've been fortunate to still be funded by the Ford Foundation and, and a new partner to Kellogg Foundation as well as other funders we've had over the years, but they're right now the two main funders of the center who are pushing forward this whole idea of looking at poor families and economic security, and particularly how does child support and other policies that compromise their ability to take care of their children. That sounds incredible. Speaking of policies, in your opinion, what are the most critical policy changes needed to address the negative impact from child support enforcement on low-income fathers? That question comes at a really good time because President Obama, one of the last things he did was signed an order where new guidelines came out for the child support system that are very, very good in terms of trying to get people to understand you shouldn't be doing imputed orders. Um, child, support sh- child support should not be seen as a punishment, that we should really rethink this whole idea of incarcerating people who have no money. In fact, you shouldn't do it because the Supreme Court says you shouldn't do it. If they have no money, the Supreme Court ruling which was the Roger V. Turner's ruling, says you shouldn't put people in jail if they have no money. You have to do due diligence to be sure that if you're putting someone in jail that you understand why you're putting them in jail. It's because they're hiding money. But many of the men that I've talked to who are making less than $10,000 a year just don't have any money. The other thing is that we, we are very happy that in the rulings there's an idea that you should also not have men be charged the birthing costs. And that birthing costs is a, a really unique aspect of child support and that women who use Medicaid for the cost of their birth of their child, the this, this mother can't pay that back because federal law requires that you can't have someone pay back a federal benefit they receive, but somebody else can, and that generally is a non-custodial father. So some states, one of them I think is New York as a matter of fact, but we have found that the state will charge the father for the birth of the child. So if the cost of the child's birth was $3,000 or $5,000 or $60,000, the law allows you to charge that father 
that bill. And the, the, the rules are saying that you should stop that because that's just further compromising people's economic security when they're coming for a benefit based on their poverty. The only way they qualify is based on their poverty. And to make the assumption that this father has funds somewhere to pay for the birth of this child is ludicrous. And also, I don't understand why people think that men don't want to be involved with their children. There was a study that came out of the federal government through CDC that said the most involved fathers are black men. And that's a federal government report done in 2010, I think it was. And so, therefore, it's disappointing that we don't humanize or recognize the value of men, but also particularly black men. Uh, it's really understanding the role of the black body and what it means and how it plays itself out in, in a family. Absolutely agree. And I think that was the real impetus for doing this podcast, really, is we want to actively engage thought leaders to not only dispel some of the myths and present the facts that are actually out there, but also to help change this narrative that we have of black men, and for this podcast, particularly of black fathers. What advice would you give those who are working with black fathers who must navigate these systems today? And the one thing I always say is that if you're working with young men or fathers who have children, that's only how we define father, if they do have a child support order, connect them with their child support office because the, the sanctions for non-payment can destroy your life. You know, once someone's credit's destroyed, you can't read, it's hard to repair that. If they've been incarcerated because they couldn't pay, that's on their record. And research is finding now that black men who have a record are less likely to be ever hired for a job. Not saying it's definitely a scenario that they'll never get a job, but it's just, it just makes it much harder. So it's really important to understand the child support rules in your state or your county to see if there's any way, if you're working with men, how you can help those men understand what's a, legit, what's a, a, a reasonable payment plan that they can be on because child support is very happy if you pay anything. Just don't pay them nothing. If you can pay them anything, and you have a, someone who can be as an advocate for you to help you maneuver that or, or kind of um, figure that out for you. It makes a big difference. Also, just to understand if they do have multiple children by multiple mothers, to make sure they understand that that's, a, that's an order for each child if they're not married. And also what I'm finding is that find a space for men to be able to talk about issues that confront them on a daily basis. Oftentimes men don't have an opportunity to let go some of the things they're walking around with. And what I've seen in my more recent work is a lot of men are walking around with a lot of violence that they've witnessed in their lives. A lot of their friends have died in front of them, or a lot of their family members have died from illnesses they couldn't take care of because they didn't have adequate health care. Or they themselves are homeless. You know, look around as to what housing services are available for men. Look around, also talk to the men about whether or not they have access to food and what food pantries are available. Because so many poor men are just left without any resources. And unfortunately, we're in a social welfare system that caters to women with children or parents with children, which is a, a needed thing because you want to be sure that child has a good start and if the government is able to help them do that, that's great. But we, with men, single men and single women, we don't have much of anything. And for the black community, it needs to be really recognized that who's really making it better for men are black women who are able to have any resources because the men can't get them. So you often find that the black women are sharing what little resources they have, not only with their children, but the men in their community, because they don't have as much of a, a footing 
that gets them on a solid uh, space where they're able to take care of themselves because if they've not really had an education system that's really understood their issues or they've not had enough skills of any of, a, of employment, then that's a problem. So I think this is, this is an idea of looking at the, the whole person or doing a really good ecological perspective or approach to looking at how to provide this person and recognizing their humanity and their needs. Thank you so much, Dr. Pate, for those words, as well as your expertise. I really want to thank you for engaging in this topic today, and I'm sure that our listeners will get a lot from it. Well, thank you very much for the invitation, and it's been a pleasure. Thanks for joining us. I'd like to thank our sponsors, our presenter, Dr. David Pate, and our producer, Brianna Gonzalez. To learn more about our work and to check out some of our resources, visit mcsilver.nyu.edu and ctacny.org. Until next time, this is Jason Jones, and we are changing the narrative together.